children of Iraq have names. They are not the nameless ones. The children of Iraq have faces. They are not the faceless ones. The children of Iraq do not wear Saddam's face. They each have their own face. The children of Iraq have names. They are not all called Saddam Hussein. The children of Iraq have hearts. They are not the heartless ones. The children of Iraq have dreams. They are not the dreamless ones. The children of Iraq have hearts that pound. They are not meant to be statistics of war. The children of Iraq have smiles. They are not the sullen ones. The children of Iraq have twinkling eyes. They are quick and lively with their laughter. The children of Iraq have hopes. They are not hopeless ones. The children of Iraq have fears. They are not the fearless ones. The children of Iraq have names. Their names are not collateral damage. What do you call the children of Iraq? Call them Omar, Muhammad, Fahad. Call them Marwa and Tiba. Call them by their names. So welcome to my friends Hate Freedom, and I'm here with my first recurring guest, Mark Hendricks, and we're going to do a slightly late 20-year anniversary of the beginning of the Iraq War episode. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, started off on a slightly somber note, but I thought it would be a good way to do it, and I also wanted to talk about... Um, my friend Tristan, who died in 2006 over there. Um, I should have brought up his the dates and stuff, but uh, he was definitely an adventure seeker and not afraid to put himself in the way of danger. Um, a funny story I remember about him was he came back from some kind of training or something. He came back for Christmas, and he was flying on a commercial flight, and... Just to see if he could, he decided to smuggle a hand grenade on his flight. And it was not a problem. It came right through. But he was that kind of person who would just do things to see if he could. <laughs> and uh, who knows? Maybe that's partly what uh, led to his demise. But, you know, we, um, we were 18 years old when 9-11 happened. And so it was, um, at that time, a lot of people joined up and... With all the best intentions, we were we were misled into that war, and and uh, many people have paid the price. Sure have. I think that's one of the saddest, uh, most tragic parts of the whole thing, is how so many good people like Tristan, who I didn't know personally, I uh, knew a lot about him, and I knew some of his siblings pretty well, but um, people like that really stepped up, you know, answered the call, as they say, they wanted to do the, the right thing. And um, it's just terrible how those good intentions get plugged into the worst situations and bad things happen to, to good people that really didn't need to happen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, if only we could all be more aware of the the bigger plans <laughs> i don't know yeah well i mean i think that's 
part of what got me, part of it was just that the worldview I had at the time growing up, which is essentially that the people in government are these brilliant people who are trying to do the right thing, even if they make mistakes sometimes. And so the decisions to go to war, you take it for granted that it's been properly vetted and that it's actually a good idea and that it should be happening. Right. Or that there's no, there's really no better option, that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And so you, you sign up for that stuff and then, uh, sadly, you know, sort of have to learn the hard way. Yeah. Uh, these decisions aren't made, um, in good faith or certainly not, uh, for your best interests. They may be made for someone else's best interests, but not those of, of the people. Yeah, yeah. Well, one one thing about um, going back to Tristan, um, he called me before he deployed, and just to tell me that he was going over there, and um, I could tell in the way that he called me, the way he was talking, he wasn't expecting to come back. Like I had that distinct feeling. At that time, I, I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, oh, you don't think you're going to survive. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. And I wasn't aware that, that because I've heard of that, uh, many circumstances like that, where people do seem to have a premonition. Yeah. And uh, it seems to be a real thing. But yeah, I didn't realize yeah. that that was the case. And in a way, it makes him more brave because he went and did it anyway, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that that was a real, that really sh was a a big shock to, to the community and to his family. And, uh, you know, the, those scars will be there for the rest of, of everyone else's lives. You know, that's... It's a big deal. Yeah, he was he was a big part of the fire company and the EMT crew. And, um, yeah, he had grown up there, so he had a lot of friends and family who knew him very well there. Yeah, and, and so many situations just like that. So many small towns uh, have had that experience and, and been torn apart from it. And, you know, like the poem you opened with, you know, the Iraqi kids have names and, you know, so do the American kids. Like, everybody's got a name. Yeah. This is the point. And we know the names of the people we know on our side of things, uh, or at least some of the names. But, uh, you know, when you put that shoe on the other foot uh, and think about, oh, you hear some random statistic, uh, Five, five troops were killed and, you know, 15 civilians were killed as part of the operation. And, uh, you know, they're just numbers and stats. But, you know, all of those people are somebody's brother or somebody's daughter or son. And uh, so actually having firsthand contact with somebody really puts that into perspective in a way that is kind of lost on people who don't have direct loss. Yeah, yeah. When it's not someone you know or someone even from your town, then it's really easy to just not think about it. 
Yep. Well, should we do this uh, Wesley Clark clip here? Um, we might as well. Sounds like a good place to start. Since this was in... Well, it was right after September 11th, 2001. So it's before Iraq started, but... Uh, tells you that they had they had a plan so I came back to see him a few weeks later and by that time we were bombing in Afghanistan I said are we still going to war with Iraq and he said oh it's worse than that he said he reached over on his desk he picked up a piece of paper and he said I just he said I just got this down from upstairs meaning the Secretary of Defense office today and he said this is a memo that describes how we're gonna take out seven countries in five years starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. All right. Seven countries, five years. That was the plan on, what, September 12th, 2001, pretty much. Pretty much. Well before then, probably. I think it was worse than that, though, because... if I remember right, the night of September 11th, because Bush showed up at the World Trade Center site, I believe that day, or was it later? Maybe it was a couple days later. Either way, he did address uh, the nation from the Oval Office the night of September 11th, and immediately refused to use the words Al-Qaeda, even though everyone knew it was Al-Qaeda that was responsible for those attacks. But the language used was already leaving the door open for an endless war. On the war on terror. Yeah. yeah. So th- that terminology was thrown out there from day one. And, um, and along with the idea that this is essentially going to be endless. Yeah. Um, so people were being... Uh, condition for that right away. And I don't remember, I wonder if you do, when Iraq specifically came onto the radar because it had to have been within a couple weeks. It could have been. I don't remember. I wasn't paying that close attention to that stuff back then. I wasn't as keyed in. So... Um, I do remember that they started using the name Osama bin Laden right off the bat, like this, oh, yeah. the very same day um, as the attacks were happening. They, the the news reporters were already saying that because they had gotten that memo. <laughs> and I think he had been in the news previously um, as someone who was a threat. And so that was like an easy go to as well. Yep, that was, and I was so young, and like you say, I mean, I wasn't tuned into this stuff. I wasn't paying attention. I mean, I think the first time we watched the news in in my house growing up was probably on September 11th. <laughs> huh. Maybe a little bit here and there before that, you'd catch the nightly news uh, here and there. But after that, I remember we were watching everything regularly, and... Um, because the the buildup for Iraq, of course, that was in March 2003, but as much as a year earlier, for sure, there was marshalling of forces in Kuwait and troops being redirected from Saudi Arabia to yep. stage 
on the pretext of invasion. And there was the whole, there was that propaganda about the um, Iraqi soldiers throwing babies out of incubators. That was the which, first Gulf War. Oh, that was the first? Yeah. So that was Clinton's, okay. Bush, Bush, Bush Sr. started that? Okay. And that, well, that's a good thing to mention because... Was that when Saddam Hussein was put into power? Because we put him there pretty much, as I recall. Well, it goes all the way back to 1979 is when he came into power. And that's, well, first, everyone should read Scott Horton's book, um, uh, Enough Already, which is about the war on terror. And then there he has Fool's Errand, which is specifically about Afghanistan. Right. But he traces the war on terror all the way back to 79. But really to 1953 when the CIA overthrew the Iranian leader and installed their own puppet, uh, Shah, somebody. And then in 79, there was the Iranian revolution where they were attempting to overthrow the guy the CIA had installed in the 50s. And it led to all this stuff. Which many years later, that's a very familiar story just right. because it's been done. The same exact thing has been done so many times over where we install someone and then once they stop complying with whatever our whims are, then we overthrow them. It's it's like Dave Smith says, if you want to see who our next enemy is, look at who we're funding now. Right. Yeah. And then so 79 or 1980. I think it was 79, Saddam also came into power through a violent coup of his own um, that I'm not sure what the U.S. backing was, if any, for that. But then we definitely supported him to go to war in Iran, which was, I think, most of the 80s. He was fighting an old-style trench warfare, just terrible, terrible uh, type of warfare, uh, Hundreds of thousands of people died in that. And that led to um, his invasion of Kuwait in 91 because he had a whole bunch of war debt from Kuwait and uh, a couple other countries. And uh, the price of oil was, I think, 10 bucks a gallon. Wow. And uh, things weren't going well for him to pay those loans. And the Kuwaitis had called in their debts. And um, he just decided to invade instead. <laughs> and at first, the U.S. was kind of like, all right, whatever, you can take some of the northern oil fields. Uh, and then he ended up going, taking the whole country. And then um, most people contend that they were going to let him get away with it. And then Margaret Thatcher got after Bush Sr. and said, you better do something about this. So they launched the war to take him out. So part of that propaganda campaign was the Iraqi army taking babies out of incubators in Kuwaiti hospitals and throwing them against the wall. And it was a lie. They brought in this girl to testify about it, who was the daughter of some diplomat who wasn't even Kuwaiti. Right. And and she told that story pretending... I think she and she told it convincingly nervous. with tears and very yeah. passionately and and had everyone 
in America wrapped around her finger as far as that goes and and bloodthirsty for such monsters who would do that. Right. And I remember just hearing that anecdote at some point growing up. I don't know if it was before or after the start of the second Iraq war, but uh, it was just sort of a matter of fact, like, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, me too. And and now we know it's just part of the, the othering process. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, they, they need those, you know, this whole idea that the, the government's acting in, according to the will of the people. It's like, well, why do they have to propagandize the people to such an extent that they agree to go along with what the government's going to do anyway? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. They lie to us to get our consent. And if we still don't consent, then they threaten us to get our consent. <laughs> uh, so that, uh, the other interesting thing about that was the government called, um, they called it Vietnam syndrome, which to them was a mental illness that the American people had after the disastrous Vietnam campaign where they were done with foreign interventions. So that ended in the early 70s. You know, we're talking just almost 20 years later. People were still not on board this stuff. And uh, this was a problem because you need some level of buy-in from the people. Right. And the Desert Storm campaign, because it was so-called, you know, quick and easy and all our fancy equipment and airplanes and precision devastated this Iraqi army and the war was over in three days or whatever it was. And that cured the Vietnam syndrome to where the modern era started with, oh, look, now we can, uh, we can fight these quick, decisive, yeah, seemingly costless. Victims. I remember thinking that as a kid that we went in and took care of a problem real quickly and and finally and that was it and that it was a good thing you know or at least not you know it was like i remember it being big news back then and i was maybe nine or ten years old i guess um but uh yeah it seemed like it was a, an intense little moment and then it passed so quickly that it was like oh well that was I guess that's the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the staples button. That was easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of but course, there's, there's so much backstory there. And um, I mean, even if you want the short version, you can listen to uh, Scott Horn did a great speech, I think in 2021 to the uh, Colorado Libertarian Party. It's about an hour and a half. And it's the, the condensed version of his uh, book. And uh, it's super informative, extremely detailed and full of things that most people probably never knew. Yeah. But it ties the whole thing together. It's like there, none of this stuff is, is unconnected. I mean, as we know in life, there's a thread of history to everything that happens. But certainly growing up, and part of it was being young, but I think it was still true, is that, you know, history began on 9-11. Uh, Osama bin Laden 
hated America because we had apple pie and baseball and way too much freedom. <laughs> and he just couldn't stand it. And yeah. so all he could think to do to punish us for our freedoms was to destroy as many American lives as possible. And and September 11th wasn't even the first attack. There was the, the embassy bombings in uh, Tanzania and Kenya, I think, and the Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia and the USS Cole bombing, of course, which I remember in the 9-11 coverage, it was, oh, yeah, Al-Qaeda are the people who blew up the USS Cole, which didn't sink it, but almost, and it killed quite a few sailors. But they had a little dinghy bomb. They drove up to it. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, okay, yeah, history didn't start on 9-11. They did give a little bit of backstory on Al-Qaeda. But then, of course, all those guys, Bin Laden himself, were all Mujahideen fighters that the CIA had been arming in the yeah. Afghan campaign when the Soviets were there. Yeah, yeah. They had trained them to draw the Soviets into a war that would be perpetual and unwinnable and would drive them broke. And right. then what did they turn around and do to us? <laughs> the exact same thing. Well, exactly. And it was and, like they were using our own playbook against us. Right. And that was Bin Laden's, of course, goal was to drag us into Afghanistan. And our goal, yeah, like you say, a few years before was to drag the Soviets in there, get them bogged down. Uh, and I think the Soviet Union was going to go away anyway, but people generally seem to agree that that Afghanistan campaign was kind of the nail in the coffin for for the Soviet Union. And um, from the economics yeah. point of view. So it's very odd to me, even if you're a psychopath, that you would think it was a good idea to go do the same thing that you just tried to trick somebody else into doing because it would be costly to them. Right, right. <laughs> but yeah, and it makes you wonder, like, who's making these decisions? <laughs> what are their What are their considerations? Because some of the ones that seem like they should be most obvious clearly weren't being considered. Right. Oh, it's um, it's quite perplexing. <laughs> yeah. So James Corbett has um, a documentary series about. Um, I guess it's called The Secret History of Al-Qaeda or something. It's about the history of how they got started and everything. And a lot of it had to do with, with our involvement. And it, had, it happened like as a response of our involvement over there. And our CIA was constantly meddling with stuff. And, uh, <clears throat> and yeah, like that whole thing with the Soviets, like I'm, I'm sure a lot of it was just getting them trained up to do that. You know, and I, uh, I don't remember. I'm, I'm terrible with remembering the details, but um, they weren't just some religious extremists who happened to be over there hating us, <laughs> you know? Right. Yeah. And they, they hated us, you know, um, after having worked for us basically. Um, and, I guess this is the tricky thing because you can say what bin Laden said, but then, of course, one could argue, well, who cares what bin Laden said? Um, 
because he is a bad guy, but I think the fact remains that his recruit recruiting pitch was um, citing the occupation. Well, since the first Iraq war, how the U.S. maintained bases in Saudi Arabia and continued to bomb Iraq during, two, you know, all the way up until 2003, the start of the second Iraq war. So he called it, you know, the occupation of, of the two holiest sites of Islam. Um, and then they were bombing Iraqis for, what was it? 12 years. And hmm. wow. no fly so zones. That was a, a, a fairly constant thing ever since Iraq won. Yeah. And so the United States was bombing Iraq for, well, as of 2021, literally 30 years straight. Wow. Despite only being at war with them, so-called, for a much smaller part of that time. And uh, so that's how bin Laden recruited people was, you know, talking about these, you know, what they considered crimes being committed on the Arab people on, in their homeland and, and part of their holy site. So the Kobar Towers bombing was essentially an apartment complex where U.S. airmen were stationed who were flying these missions over Iraq. So, he, and he spelled all of that out very, very clearly in his declarations of war. So again, you can say, well, he was bad, we don't have to listen to him, but it was an effective recruiting pitch that motivated people to go do the things that they were doing. So right. <laughs> you can argue with that, but it worked. Yep, yep. So it's not, not something to be overlooked. And it's funny because I was just listening to a debate about that and and someone was saying, well, Bin Laden never said it was about the U.S. meddling and killing Iraqis. And the other person was like, uh, yeah, he did. He <laughs> said that a bunch of times very, very clearly and had it all written out because he had two different declarations of war. One in 96 and maybe one in 98. Huh. Something like that. Huh. So it's all there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, surely it just didn't get reported on. Somehow <laughs> somehow flew under the radar. <laughs> yep. And uh, th there's just so many little... Uh, I, I wish I had a better handle on the whole... The whole web of events yeah but. well i mean leading up to the iraq war in i guess it would be the time between um between september 11th and then the time we actually invaded there was a few different things like a, some different propaganda things one of which was the anthrax scares which were kind of used to um make us think that we just were at this constant threat. You know, it wasn't just a one-off thing that happened on 9-11. It was like this terrorism was here to stay and something we we're going to have to keep dealing with. And, you know, the, the anthrax scares turned out to be the government sending envelopes to itself. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't an organic thing at all. It wasn't, I don't think it was coming from 
al-Qaeda at all. It was just like one government office to another. Or was one... that really it? With the... Yeah, yeah. I actually have a clip about that. If you want to check it out, we can see. Um... Sure. It's right after the, I believe, the Tom Daschle letter. And Richard Pearl is sitting there basically saying, look, you know, this is only a few letters, um, you know, only a little bit of anthrax. What if Saddam Hussein sent out tens of thousands of letters, you know, filled with the amount of anthrax that we know that he has? So they're already trying to, you know, they're pushing very hard for this idea. And actually a guy stands up in the audience and he kind of says, you know, after listening to you talk today, I wouldn't surprise me if this is sort of a Reichstag fire event that some right winger here in this country is actually behind. He wasn't referring to like a right wing super patriot, which is how people characterize Bruce Ivins. He was referring to neoconservative policymakers in D.C. that might have actually been behind it. I'd never heard that. I'd sort of actually honestly forgotten about the anthrax, but I definitely remember. Yeah, they had the envelope on TV with the right, you know, scrawled address, and this. You know, that was the first time I ever heard of anthrax. Of course. Yeah, yeah, it had never been really a thing before that I'm aware of. And yeah, there was another propaganda thing that they had going on, which was the aluminum tubes, yellow cake uranium, and that was all based on satellite images that. Um, What they, I guess Iraq had had like a nuclear energy program, but there was no, there was no reason to believe that they were actually developing nukes. It was really just something that was fabricated up so that we could have a reason to invade. Yeah, the aluminum tube thing was they they were real aluminum tubes, but the contention was they'd use them for centrifuges. I guess right, yeah, part of that. Uh, process, but they were used and people knew they had been used for, they were short range uh, rocket delivery systems or part of that. And um, so I think the UN inspectors were like, yeah, let them have the tubes. Who cares? They're not going to be able to do anything they're not allowed to do with them. Right. Uh, and they also, you know, at the end of 91, all of um, <clears throat> his weapons of mass destruction had been dealt with back then. And people knew he had them before because, well, in part, of course, the U.S. had helped provide them to him right. when he was fighting Iran. Yeah. So when he was on our side, a little client uh, state uh, ruler, he got equipment from us and there were a couple different flip-flops um of switching sides uh but part of i think saddam's shock in 03 was kind of like well before that with the exception of 91 he'd always been you know a friend of the u.s in a sense yeah yeah and he wasn't um some religious extremist either he shaved his chin you know he was uh he wasn't he wasn't wearing all the garb and stuff that those guys would be he was i mean like we said before he was put there by the united states and he had been um 
probably a quote unquote democratically elected <laughs> dictator prior to that, <laughs> meaning we had placed him there. Um, but yeah, a secular, he was a secular leader and, uh, and that just, that didn't matter. They still painted him as, as some religious extremist just to like lump him in with Al Qaeda Right. Yeah, he was a Bin Ladenite or, you know, a Bin Laden sympathizer and enabler, which, as you mentioned, they were talking about Bin Laden right away after 9-11 and rightfully so. But they I guess the scheme they had to come up with was how they could conflate Bin Laden and Saddam Hussein as being in league with each other or equal threats to each other so that they could justify the war. And so they completely made up a couple bogus connections to how Saddam Hussein was helping fund or train or supply Al-Qaeda, which which is just not true. And it's all been proven either in real time or since then. Yeah. But because... You know, you take advantage of uh, people's uh, shock and outrage at being attacked and their grief and then, of course, their fear and then amplify and build on that fear. And um, you can get people to sign on to all sorts of crazy stuff by claiming you're doing it to protect them for their safety. I mean, we could go on a whole sidebar about the Patriot Act. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was... Right along with that memo of seven countries, five years, that that came right along close to the same time. And they used this this wave of fear that they had put everyone under to to sneak that one through. So it's definitely relevant. Yep. And I. You have to, at least for me, it's impossible to not look back on this and then look at. 2020 and the other things that happened with fear and government and ridiculous things being forced upon us in a time of uncertainty. Uh, The playbook's identical. Yeah, yeah. You know, capitalize upon a, a real thing that happens and then add in a whole bunch of other things that are either completely made up or unrelated or you know, aren't actually a problem. Right. And then use it to not only rapidly expand the size of government, but, you know, crack down on everyone's civil liberties in the process, which yeah, I guess that's sort of redundant. The two, it's one and the same. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they tend to at least be concurrent. <laughs> um but yeah, I mean they're and they're doing the same thing again. They they've they've got a new Patriot Act called the Restrict Act that um they're using TikTok as the excuse for this, but really it's uh we get to see everything you do. We get to control all your financial um interactions and everything. Like it it's another it's another huge huge encroachment on civil liberties and um and yeah, they're they're still trying to ride that same wave of fear about things that um, and right, you know this was more like tech oriented people are afraid of 
what's happening to their kids and um, AI and all that kind of stuff. Um, and and there's been a lot of fear drummed up around like China and Russia and stuff like that. So it's it's all done under the veil of protecting us from those countries. But really, the people we need more protecting from are the ones in our own government. Right. And, and I think you meant China. China. <laughs> but that's just it. In fact, I said that very thing to someone uh, who was talking about the the horrible Chinese spy balloon a couple months ago. <laughs> like, oh, can you believe this Chinese spy balloon? They're just letting it float across our country and our heartland and... You know, the Chinese, of course, they're the worst people in the world, and how could we ever let this happen? And the question is, who's in a position to harm you? The Chinese and their government, whatever they may have garnered from this so-called spy balloon, or our own, you know, government right here at home, who's uh, recording your phone calls and has access to basically everything yeah. um, there is to have access to and is destroying the dollar and screwing up the money supply and you know, just all these terrible things that government does in real time all the time to us. Yeah. But we're worried about what Chinese intelligence might do. And, and really, I think... Um, to me, from my perspective, compared to 2001, um, it's way more obvious. Like, it's sort of the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me kind of thing. Like, back then, there was this, there was obviously fear, but there was also patriotism, and none of us knew what was in that Patriot Act. You know, we thought it was about um, getting the terrorists who attacked us, and it turned out I don't I don't think they've really even caught any terrorists using their Patriot Act um, expanded authorities. They've caught a lot of drug dealers <laughs> and put a lot of people in prison for things like conspiracy to con. To commit felony, which means they did nothing except talk about doing something, you know, or talk to the wrong people about the wrong thing or something like that, you know, and that's that's one of the most common charges that people go to prison for. And yet. And yet we're supposed to believe that conspiracies are all fake, <laughs> right? Right. When most of them are just FBI and trap and ops. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, when it comes to that stuff, it is. But like the idea that people don't actually conspire is also just pretty ridiculous. Well, right. That that's an absurdity in and of itself. Um, and that's a you know I hate using the, the term conspiracy theory. Uh, I wish we could come up with something else for it. I guess you know plot. But yeah the thing that people fail to grasp sometimes is, well, what about the conspiracies that aren't theories? Right. They're actual. Yeah. And there's too many to count. 
Yeah, yeah. And I've said before that, like, I'd rather concentrate on actual conspiracies rather than theoretical ones. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> and I'd rather be called a conspiracy theorist than a coincidence theorist. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> that's. I mean, that's sort of a... I guess I'm tangentially going off subject here a little bit, but yeah, it's uh Right, well, you know, that's, I think, you know, with going back to the, the 20 years on here, um, it, it's such a learning opportunity because, you know, even people like us who are on the younger side when all this went down, we were old enough to be aware, and certainly now we can look back on it and fill in a lot of the blanks that maybe we had at the time. But just to understand and really study this playbook by government to capitalize on misfortune, however those initial events come into being, and then use all these tactics to scare and manipulate the population into supporting the things that the, the government decides it wants to do, which may or may not even be connected. I mean, in this, in this case, like going into Afghanistan after 9-11 was obviously connected. And I think most people would, would agree that that was a reasonable response to go in and target al-Qaeda in yeah. Afghanistan. And you could have done that and been wrapped up in a month or two and come home. But the goal, as you know, we've been talking about, was, was always to get on to other theaters yep yeah and it's it's made painfully obvious by the fact that they let osama bin laden go at least once probably more i want to say it's at least twice but um i know there's at least that one time when they had them surrounded in a valley and then they were told to back off like uh post uh 9-11 yes yeah yep yeah at tora bora they had them cornered and uh, there was plenty of forces. I think there were army rangers nearby. Mattis was not far with a battalion or two of Marines. There was Delta Force guys, of course, all sorts of spooks and special operations people who um, were begging their commanders, like, hey, get these reinforcements to us. We got them cornered. We just need to lock things down so we can go in and, and grab them. And they were repeatedly denied. And I don't remember exactly how long that situation, like the course of time there, it was a few days, maybe a week. And inevitably, as we all know, bin Laden melted across the border into Pakistan <laughs> and the everyone was forbidden to pursue him. When we had clearance from you know pakistan was they were cooperative yeah and uh they had already been briefed on hey if if our guys are chasing the bad guys and they cross the border like we need to work on our deconfliction stuff so that we don't engage with you guys because we're going to be in hot pursuit but they were specifically denied to pursue him across and they sort of <laughs> acted like you know he went into 
hyperspace and you know was just gone there's, there's nothing we can yeah. do he's in pakistan our our friend's country and um but then the president and you know uh secretary of defense you know, donald rumsfeld they're all talking about how well you know this isn't about bin laden um and i think rumsfeld even said you know, we should just start bombing Iraq right now so people don't get the wrong idea that this is all about bin Laden. <laughs> and so a lot of people suspect that if he had allowed to have been captured or killed right then, as far as everyone else was concerned, the war would have been over. Right. Yep. We, we got bin Laden. That was the whole objective. And, uh, but no, that would have sent the signal that the war was over and that it was not. It was not going to be over for a very long time. Right. Yeah. For as long as they could keep it going, that that um, military industry is a real cash cow for some of those people. And and unfortunately, I think that's a huge part of why we get involved in these wars and, and why we continue them perpetually. It's, yeah, I don't see a better explanation. I mean, there's... There's more factors than just that, for sure. Right. But um, that those those companies have a lot of lobbying power, and they've got they've got representatives in their pockets enough to make a difference. They sure do, and then just the whole um, again the the things that motivate and animate these leaders and and uh, kingmakers in government you know most of this is the unelected part of government yeah right? the people the the deep administrative state um, the the deep state expression I I'm fine with that but it's also it's like the deep state's not I guess it depends what you mean by deep it's not deep in the sense of that it's hidden like it's pretty obvious we just have a permanent administrative state that's just there and yeah that, like no one really pretends that that doesn't exist i guess uh if you mean it deep as in that it's has great depth in terms of its yeah there, there there may be some more shadowy factions like international bankers and stuff right but um if you just look at the people who go from from being the head of the FTDA to a CEO at Pfizer and then back and forth between like the industry and the administration, um, those revolving door people who never get elected, they just have perpetual jobs going back and forth between the two industries and getting payoffs. And that's, that's in many, that's the deep state right there. You know, um, there's people in the media who have the same thing. They they get jobs with the government and then they go work in the media and then maybe they go back to the government as a speaker of the house or something or not speaker of the house, but like a press secretary or something like that. And then they land on NBC, you know, um, there's there's so much of that kind of stuff where there's clearly cooperation and um, they're working in each other's interests not in the interests of truth or morality. That's for sure. And of something that I, I encountered it 
for myself when I was younger, but I also still hear it a lot. When you talk about things like this, that, you know, the government sold a whole complex, sophisticated series of blatant lies as a pretext for war. A lot of people's first question, you know, from a normie, so-called, is, well, you know, why would they do that? Or whenever you allude to some other plot or bad faith act, it's like, well, why would they do that? Because the, the assumption is that they're more or less acting on your behalf and they're acting in good faith. And um, what would the incentive be? You know, what are they getting out of it that they would lie, right. risk all this undermining of their credibility and uh, their s status? And, you know, the answer is that they're just motivated by a completely different set of factors that yeah. aren't part of your and I's life. Yeah, we have a tendency to project ourselves onto other people. And so if a good person, a good person is not going to be able to easily understand what um, the motivations are for people to do evil things. Right. Because we don't have that context. Right. And we don't have all these different cronies in high places who who were scratching their back and they're scratching our back. Yeah, well, yeah, and there's a lot of coercion, too. It's not all just, like, bribery and cake. It's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's threats and stuff like that. It's blackmail, you know? There's, there's a lot of that, you know? You, you always start with the bribe, but if, if someone doesn't bite on the bribe, you can always try the, uh, the other side of it, too. And there's, there's so much of both of those in how governments function. That's for sure. Like, yeah, how about a color revolution in your home country if you don't do the things that we want you to do? Yeah. Um, there's plenty of examples of that. <laughs> Throw $200 million at it and it's done. <laughs> oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, so, like... Um, so I can't remember when, and I think I asked you this, or do you remember when you first heard about Iraq, like between 9-11 and March 2003, like, did it come? My on? first actual memory of it is seeing, um, the news, seeing Bush talk about it. Um, I think it was when he announced when we were going in, but there was probably some lead up that I was aware of, um, I don't have a clear memory of I was I was in college I was concentrating on other things you know even even though 9/11 had happened and a few people I knew had gone most of the people I knew hadn't even gone then cuz like Tristan was still around he was still a classmate of mine in 2003 Right You're he didn't go right long. away Yeah well no um we were 18 but like okay. yeah like not everyone joined up right away you know Gotcha um, and, uh, so, yeah, I don't exactly remember, um, when I first became aware that that was, I remember vaguely that it didn't quite make sense, but, um, I wasn't thinking critically enough about any of it to, to fully question it. Um, I, 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 had been very influenced by Pink Floyd's The Wall and 
by some other cultural stuff to the point that I was feeling pretty anti-war in general, but not to the point where I completely discredited our involvement in the Middle East, like, because 9-11 had happened and, you know, there's such thing as justified war. So, (laughs) um, yeah, I, I guess I was questioning some of it, but not super deeply. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I listened to The Wall, too, but I just didn't get it. I had to watch the movie to really okay. have it uh, have an impact. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I still haven't seen that, but I have, I have a general idea what it's about now. But yeah, you, I, I was the same way, obviously being a decent amount younger, especially in those teenage years where a few years makes a huge difference so i was pretty out of it in the sense of i wasn't thinking about it critically at all because i still have that mindset of that you know bush is a good guy and he's trying to do the right thing and all these smart people are making the best possible decisions that they can make and i believed the the global war on terror concept and that well, of course, there's bad people everywhere. It isn't just Bin Laden. And the Saddam guy is clearly a bad guy, which nobody disputes right. that he was an evil Yeah, guy. yeah. But that is a whole different thing than him being a Bin Ladenite ally. Yeah. Well, and, and it brings us right back to that poem that we started with. Not all those Iraqi children's names are Saddam Hussein. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and they, you know, they did a lot to really amplify um, just how bad of a guy Saddam was, and all of the terrible yeah. things he did to his um, political enemies, like they were doing with Assad a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So I, I was actually for a long time. Because the, the WMD narrative fell apart pretty quickly. Um, and I was just looking earlier. I think it was February 2004. Uh, so about a year later that Condoleezza Rice was saying our, all our intelligence was wrong about him mm-hmm. having weapons of mass destruction. And I didn't remember that happening. But So all the top people, they weren't even pretending that he had the weapons. And so immediately the, the narrative just shifted. It's like, well, now we're there and Saddam's bad and he's got to go. And uh, we can't just leave the place a mess. we got to rebuild it because we're good people and that's what we do. And um, but then still the, there was debate. There were uh, stories of troops who were there who were saying, you know, don't believe what they're saying on the news. Like we're doing really good stuff there and, and people want us to be there. And, um, you know, he really did have stuff he wasn't supposed to have and we found it and blah, 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 sort of all anecdotal things. Um, but it's just interesting. It's very telling that the, the people who sold it in the first place, let go of that very very quickly 
Yeah. Yeah, I remember not knowing what to think because it ended up being the kind of thing where the right wing was hanging on to, well, everyone thought they were there we or they had them, but they had time to shuffle them off across the border into Syria. So they hid them. And so there was that narrative. And then it was more the Democrat narrative was that um, they never existed. And since I was from a conservative family and consumed more conservative news, I was hearing more of the, well, we all thought they were there and they had time to hide them kind of stuff as far as WMDs go. Same here. And I remember somebody saying, and I, I held on to this for a while, you know, he could have a 55-gallon drum of his yellow cake, uranium or whatever it is, and, and drive it out in the middle of the desert and bury it in a hole and, you know, no one could have <laughs> He had all the time in the world to do that or... Or he just put them in shipping containers and sent them over to Syria or wherever. It sounds like a very deployable device, right? A 55-gallon drum. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, there's just so much. Well, this is another an interesting thing that I only heard about recently, that there were troops who did find mustard gas, hmm. real deal mustard gas, and they got sick from it, and it was buried in the desert. But it didn't count as, um, and it wasn't reported as such either, because, well, it didn't count as finding WMDs because it was old stuff he had from pre-1991 that the UN knew he had and knew was buried in the desert, and they had decided that it was better to be left there right. because of the hazards of trying to transport it and dispose of it differently. Yeah. So they left it there, and, and people knew about it, but the troops who found it, you know, they weren't aware of that. Of right. So they're coming across it and going, thinking they're onto something. Yeah, yeah. And they are. Got all excited. and. But then the, the Bush couldn't take that as a victory because everyone knew it was produced long before the time frame that they were talking about, which was that he was currently working on developing these things uh so that was a bit of a thing and, and there was a news article about it that said well yeah we did find wmds but you know bush is just too modest to take a victory lap and say oh, i told you so you know because oh, because the guy who sold you on this huge war would be too modest to say that he was right about it like it doesn't make sense That's to me. Some real North Korea type stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that article was just pulling from a different article that gave the real story. Yeah. Um, which is that it didn't fit the narrative, so it wasn't talked about. Um, so, but, you know, people did believe it. I, I read a couple books back in the day about guys who were in that initial invasion and they were really expecting to, to find stuff. Yeah. Uh, and again, there, there were people who, who were happy at some level to get rid of Saddam. I don't think there's any question about that, but uh, that wasn't really the, the point <laughs> Right. And and what replaced Saddam? Like 
are the people of Iraq any better off for his being taken out? Probably not. There's there's a lot of families who aren't there anymore. There's certainly a lot of innocent people who lost their lives for that effort. And Right. I think, you know, depends on the estimate, but you're talking about several hundred thousand to possibly a million people died. Yeah. Throughout the whole thing. And um so what what's worse? You know, was if Saddam remained in power, would he have killed a million people? Yeah, probably not. Probably not. Doesn't mean he would have been good, but I think he was very much like uh Gaddafi in Libya, where clearly a, an undisputed bad guy, but nonetheless is a force of some level of stability in the region. Yeah. And then when they're taken out, they're the bad guy's gone, but you have a a much worse disaster on your hands. And it all goes to hell. Yep. Especially like in, in Libya for sure. Like hell. Um I don't know what the conditions in Iraq are now. Um, I know wherever we do a lot of bombing, the, the soil's poison. It's hard to grow anything. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much they were able to grow in some of these places to begin with. Um, Libya, I think, had some good fertile. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, a lot of it's desert. I, I don't know. Um, but... I also know that these like these reconstruction projects, a lot of, as you mentioned briefly earlier, um, these reconstruction projects, a lot of the people doing them, there's there's both military and private contractors over there doing these projects, and they think they're doing great stuff that's going to help the people um, pull themselves up by their bootstraps kind of thing. And, and like, they, they think they're establishing an infrastructure there. And uh, it ends up being projects like either the people aren't interested or capable of doing it, or it's a very misdirected project. Like I've heard things like dairy barns being built in the middle of the desert where there's like, there's no sustainable way to have a dairy barn where you don't have a good source of water and grass and everything like that. So they're building in a lot of interdependency on other systems that's just not there. And so then people go back, you know, five, ten years later to the same project, and they're like, oh, there's nothing there. It's gone. It's already gone. Yeah, just a complete waste of time and resources. Yeah. And, and all executed on maybe at best good intentions with just poor planning and and providing you know just and this was a problem from the very beginning was this the Western American mindset coming in and working with you know people in the Iraqi military with just a completely different mindset and um this coming together of cultures that just aren't on the same wavelength at all. Yeah. It comes yeah. to priorities, much less other things. And like there's uh, stories of 
of people who worked directly with the Iraqi army. And they're hearing that their commanders, meaning the Iraqi soldiers' commanders, were skimming their soldiers' pay. And so the American guys were really outraged by this, that your boss is, is skimming your pay. But to them, they're like, yeah, of course he is. He's the boss. Like, <laughs> that's just how it worked for them. Right. didn't think anything of it. Yeah. But, you know, the, the other guys did. Now, there's an, an irony there that I uh, would like to insert, which is that um, maybe the Iraqi army didn't have a payroll tax, but, um, hey, Mr. GI guy, your boss is skimming your paycheck, too, <laughs> in the form of your payroll and income tax and all that. But yeah. um, we don't think about that as this directly bad thing. Like, you know, if you have a person associated with, like, you know, your direct boss is taking out of your paycheck. Right. That's a real problem. But the government's taking stuff out of your paycheck and well whatever that's just the way it's it an abstract thing that just happens and yeah that's how it is so actually yeah. to me they're the exact same thing yeah it's just um this culture was looking at it and it's slightly different so it, you can see it better yeah what it yeah. is and be upset about it single stream taxation <laughs> right there you go <laughs> the iraqi guys are probably like well you're getting paid by the federal government and they're still taxing you. Like you still file a tax return when you have a federal job so that you can give government money back to the government. Sounds like a money laundering scheme. Well. From the government. <laughs> yeah. Skimming on both sides. <laughs> well, I, I filed, I didn't have to pay Pennsylvania income tax when I was overseas, but I had like probably more income than I'd had in previous years because I did a deployment. I didn't really have any expenses and you know, you feel like you're the richest guy in the world when you're making that deployment money. But, uh, I had to send, I had to prove that I was overseas hmm. to PA cause you know, I owed technically owed tax and right. they weren't happy about that, but Huh. Once you could prove it, then you were exempt. Yeah. And I forget how it worked with federal. Like, you'd get a refund, I guess, uh, usually, because you still had withholdings. Yeah. From your Like a normal paycheck. W-2. Yeah. Huh. So it was weird in that sense. So what is the state of Iraq now? What is our involvement there? Because I certainly have the impression that we're still involved to some capacity, even if it's not a major capacity. I don't really know. I I think it's probably more similar to maybe countries, just for example, like post-Second World War, where there's some level of activity there, but it's not really military action. So I'm, I'm right. sure there's plenty of civilian people there. Military presence is pretty minimal as far as I'm probably maintaining a couple bases. And well, the thing is, I wish I'd looked more into this, but ahead of time, but the, uh, 
Iraqi government wanted us out. Like, no basis. So I'm actually pretty sure that we don't have. Oh. Now that I think about it, I don't think we actually do have a base because they refused to give us a lease or sign a lease. And when I was there, actually, we were in the process of turning everything over to the Iraqi army uh, in terms of bases. Mm -hmm. And so this was the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. Okay. And the uh, Iraqi government was pretty clear that they wanted us out of there. And it was sort of almost controversial at the time because, like, well, we just fought this war for you and put you in power, and now you're kicking us out. And they're like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in 2011, I believe, all the troops were out. Yeah, I, I've seen 2011 as the official ending of it, but I don't, I just, I guess I don't take that for granted that that means we're actually out. <laughs> well, that's the thing is, and I don't think the United States is ever out of anywhere. Right. But Iraq may be a little bit different just because they were not willing to give us. Yeah, they were pretty uh, adamant about yeah about not letting us be there anymore. But then in 2013 or 14, with the rise of ISIS, and then, of course, ISIS coming in and basically taking back over most of Iraq, there was a decent amount of U.S. forces that went back in to right. take them out. And but that was led by the Iraqi military. Hmm. So they that was the thing. It had to be them taking the lead on it. It couldn't be the U.S. coming in and taking the lead on it. But we supported them heavily to, you know, get ISIS out of there. I think that was all the way up until maybe even 2016 or 17. Um, but like famously, Fallujah fell. You know, that was one of the, the big battle in 2004, Battle of Fallujah, just this crazy, urban, really intense uh, combat that the Marine Corps was heavily involved in, and as well as some of the Army infantry units, and took heavy, heavy losses in just this door-to-door, street-to-street, ugly, ugly stuff, and... Uh, similar uh, type of conflict in sense of it in the sense of its uh, significance in Ramadi although the they didn't fight it in the same way they did more of like a, a seize clear hold or what is it seize hold build or something it's just a hmm. slightly different approach that seemed to work better and at that point, there were people there who wanted help from the U.S. because there were some really gnarly um, insurgents there who who weren't locals and and nobody really liked them. Right. So it's sort of a enemy of my enemy kind of a deal. Yep. Yep. Um, but I, I remember personally, and many other people I knew, just being really outraged. When Ramadi and Fallujah fell to ISIS, you know, 
10 years later after the what had gone on to take those cities and I was like well what was the point of that you know all that effort and loss and destruction just to let them go um, not too much later but then the other side of it was well so what are we meant to stay there forever right to maintain control of Fallujah and Ramadi now, of course the idea was that the Iraqi army would have was supposed to be able to maintain it and that's why we could leave but they they weren't able to yeah well that sounds very similar to what happened in Afghanistan more recently yeah and the fact that people were surprised about that um is frustrating because I mean anyone who knew anything knew that the the Afghan National Army wasn't gonna do they weren't gonna hold up yeah and the people you know US forces who worked on those training teams they had to consistently pad the stats to their superiors yeah. to, to make things seem like they were going half decent and they weren't like these guys they're training aren't showing up or they're just abandoning their posts and they would uh you know the ground level troops would post the numbers of how many guys showed up to work that day and then they'd turn it to their commanders their commanders would pass those numbers up and then each level of the ladder would like add a few percentage of people to that count so by the time it got to the top it's like oh 200 guys showed up today for training when you know it was 20. oh man uh, wow so just all sorts of things like that well and i've also heard um from at least at least one or two uh veterans who do podcasts and stuff um that the people who were the Afghanis who were helping the U.S. military um, with things like intelligence and guidance, you know, navigation, all that kind of stuff, they had in some way betrayed their own people. Um, and therefore, when the U.S. left and left them behind they were basically like left out to dry and they didn't have any, like there was that, that kind of left them without um, the same kind of infrastructure, the same kind of security that they had when they were helping the U S troops in the, the troops operation. Now that's more like, I guess an intelligence and um, logistics uh, faculty of it, not just like troops on the ground. Um, but uh I thought that was an interesting perspective and it depends on who's who their families are, who's in charge, you know, was it Taliban or um the the military that we had put there. <laughs> um yeah. There's a lot of that with uh in Iraq. Too. But Taliban would certainly see them as traitors. For sure. Well, if you know, I heard this from uh one of those military podcasts from someone who probably would have had people who would have known this, um, even though they weren't there at the time, that when ISIS was coming back into Western Iraq, 
they had a list of families or individuals and their families who had worked with coalition forces during the war and they were it was a hit list so the story i heard or the figure i heard was when isis took back fallujah they killed 500 families hmm. of um, people who'd been friendly to us and the other coalition uh, guys and they they knew they were coming they knew essentially what was going to happen and and you know they there were people there who were begging the u.s to come back in to stop isis from getting control that i don't know that's one of those things where i'm still torn about it or like well maybe they should have helped them out like hey you guys helped us we're gonna protect you from this coming you know it's threat but you know I it's just, likely that there was some sort of solution or compromise that would have been better than whatever actually happened right yeah i mean it's it's pretty creepy i mean we're not talking 500 people it was 500 families yeah you know, however many yeah um probably not just the immediate family right uh so really bad stuff in that sense and you know again going back to the beginning of it 2003 okay yes all the lies the whole wmd saddam and bin laden our bros um picture the next 9-11 but this time with nukes <laughs> you know that was really the the story so the invasion went how everyone thought it was gonna go um the third infantry division and the uh, i forget which marine corps unit you know there it was the race to baghdad mm. and you know i forget how long it took them a few days or weeks they get up there saddam's fleeing nobody knows where he's at um the government crumbles most of his army stands down and then it becomes this huge management fiasco and there's no real plan as far as as far as i know it's just like all right we're here now <laughs> right and uh when I was actually in the service and it was told to me um, by someone higher up, you know, some sort of briefing, like, hey, you know what the problem was is we just went into Iraq with too lean and we went in and kicked ass and took names and all that jazz and then got to Baghdad and then just didn't have the manpower to physically lock it down to stop this flood of insurgents and mercenaries from all over the place who wanted to come in and get in on the the action during this power vacuum and that you know if we'd gone in there with more people we could have secured the borders and stopped the insurgency and i i think there's something to that but i don't think that it actually would have just worked better if there's more people because 
I don't think at first many of the insurgents were actually foreign. Right. Uh, I'm probably talking out of school a little bit, but it's just an anecdote of something that was said. Yeah. Um, about it. And so just from the very beginning, the whole, the objectives were never really all that well defined. It was just about taking out Saddam and then he was taken out and it's sort of like, well, now what? Just left waffling kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. And there's, again, like I, I sound like a, I'm just here to plug Scott Horton, but his books will break down who all the different factions were, who the players were, where all these people came from, you know, the people who used to be on our side and now weren't on our side. And Right. Um, but essentially we were, we were fighting for the uh, Shiite majority against the Sunni minority who, and essentially fighting on behalf of Iran because it was in Iran's best interests. Hmm. And that was another interesting thing. The whole Oh man, that's an interesting dynamic there. Yeah. Because every other year, Iran is being accused of developing nukes. They're going to have nukes in 20 days or whatever it is. And whatever Benjamin Netanyahu's been saying since like the 80s. Yeah, well, so my whole life, Iran's been like a week away from a nuke. Yeah. So it's been a lot of weeks now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they still bring it up. <laughs> Which is is silly because uh, what we did to Iraq was hugely beneficial to Iran. And it's, it was always sort of a conundrum to me how Iran was always this perennial bad guy that was just there that almost had a nuke. But we never really talked about taking out the Ayatollah in Iraq. Yeah. I think part of that's because um, they've also been a great resource and we've always had economic deals with them. We've always had a lot of trade with them. So as long as we're like buying oil from them and that kind of thing, then it's kind of like we can talk a big talk, but we're not actually going to do anything because we're still benefiting on both sides from our economic relationship. Yeah, there's definitely something going on there. And the other interesting thing about Iran was, so as you probably remember, the early days of the invasion, um, the the U.S. hadn't had a major conventional war uh, in decades. You know, there was Desert Storm, a very small amount of the military actually participated in. So you had a low amount of combat experience within the forces. I mean, if you happen to have a desert storm veteran, you know, in your platoon or company, that was a big deal. So there's a lot of lack of experience and then just equipment that wasn't up to, uh, you know, they, they're riding in soft skin hummers and, Oh, huh. lightly armored vehicles and uh, 
they were fine for a regular maneuver warfare, but then the IED thing came in and that was just devastating because you had all these vehicles that just weren't weren't prepared for it to take that. And even yeah. if you had tanks and stuff, you know, a, a tank could be okay, but you're not moving troops around in a tank. Uh, and so there's the Bradleys, and that that's what um, Tristan was in, hmm. Bradley, um, I'm pretty sure. And they're light armored. You know, it's a, it's a fighting vehicle, but they're not. They can take small arms fire and stuff like that. But, you know, a big old bomb or an anti-tank mine are going to be a real problem. Yeah. And they were... They were they were double and triple stacking anti-tank mines, and just wow. making these massive bombs huh. and really really effective. So that became the biggest problem. You know, the vast majority of coalition forces killed were from IEDs because that's the asymmetric warfare. Yeah, dynamic there. It's like booby traps in Vietnam, kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they work wonders. It doesn't matter about all the fancy gear you have. Yeah. You're still going to blow up. But by the time I got there, we had really good vehicles and armor. Just uh, at that point, six years too late. Yeah. It wasn't, it just wasn't too late because they were useful. But what I'm getting to... As is, far as the original... Whatever the original goal was, it was... Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, but with the only thing that could take out our well-armored vehicles were these EFPs, which are explosively formed projectiles, which are these copper cones with explosives packed behind them in sort of like a a cylinder. And so when that explosion happens, it takes that copper cone and inverts it. Oh. And turns it into a a giant um, bullet, essentially, yeah. that has the velocity and the uh, momentum and density to punch through any of the armor that we had. And so there's really sophisticated ones they had that were set up in like fake rocks with motion detectors and different um, ignition systems on them. You know, they could be command wire so someone's watching with a little button or they could have motion or remote and all that stuff would was just cyclical so like as their tactics would would go to command wire we'd get good at dealing with command wire so they'd go back to like motion activated and then we'd get deal with that and then they'd go back to like radio activated hmm. just so that, that was the big scary thing at the time and I remember being told this explicitly, like from the EOD guys and whoever, that these are being professionally produced in Iran and sent oh. here for the Iraqi insurgents to use against the U.S. I just remember thinking, huh. like, what? We should be in Iran. Why are they doing this? That's a hell of a dynamic. Yeah, but, and I found this out relatively recently. That was all nonsense. Oh. <laughs> Iran wasn't providing the EFPs at all. In fact, they were all made in Iraq. Gotcha. And uh, the professional ones included. And we found like a not very professional one. 
that was like, well, yeah, that was made. That was probably at the local Iraqi uh, IED shop. Yeah. But the fact is they were all made there um, out of probably components from like the UAE or wherever. So it was just another one of those falsehoods. I don't know what the... Yeah, so, like, you guys, as you were there, were being fed propaganda as well. It wasn't yeah. just at home. Yeah. I mean, the the best case you can make is that it was just bad intelligence. Yeah, yeah. That was later proved inaccurate. And, I mean, at this point, I think that's a pretty rosy look at it. <laughs> you know? But uh, it, it could have been. Yeah. Never know. So is there any good way to, like, wrap this up? Any, like, closing thoughts or anything? Well, I think, to me, the lesson and something that would be useful to everyone is just to to really look at how that war was sold. Yeah. And the tactics used to do that and um, how the fear of the people was capitalized on and the, um, the promise of safety and security was sort of weaponized yeah, um, in more ways than one. And um, just look at all the stuff that we were told that we can now go back and look at in context and with a little bit of detachment. There's so much to learn there. And then look at some more recent events and and look at the parallels. And then you can really get further uh, into it and look back, you know, to things before the Iraq war where um, it's always been the same type of thing where there's some kind of agenda, there's somebody in government who wants to do something and they just need to get the darn people on board with it. Because if you gave them all the info, the people just aren't smart enough or qualified enough to make the right decision. And so you have to lie to them and manipulate them and, yeah. and use fear against them. Yeah. Every war we've been in has been, started with lies or at least our involvement in it has been and including the great war <laughs> you know world war ii there's a lot more context to go on around that there's there's a lot more context around all of them and we're better off assuming that the government and the media are lying than than getting uh wrapped up in what they're telling us and and thinking we have to go um, help this country or that country or um, whatever it is they're pushing us to do, it's probably not right. Yeah. I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, another that's another great lesson from that time was look at what the media was saying and how they were just completely in lockstep with whatever the line was out of the White House um, about just, you know, no one seemed to ask any of the tough questions that if you'd asked just a few questions deep into the stuff, it all would have unraveled.
Yeah. But they just towed the line and you had, you know, the conservatives should be the most upset about this because if, if you were a genuine, well-intentioned conservative, you were just completely, uh, manipulated and lied to and betrayed as far as I'm concerned. And all the guys on talk radio are complicit in that. Yeah. You know, Glenn Beck and Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and, and Mark Levin were all just pounding the war drums relentlessly. And this is something we had to do. If you were a, a good American who loved apple pie and baseball and your mama, um, this was what had to happen and you were bad if you thought otherwise. Right. Well, and that's the other element that we haven't even talked about. You know, we've talked about, um, patriotism and, you know, uh, I don't know, but, but shaming, shaming people into going along with whatever the agenda is, is huge. Um, and it's, I guess it's a form of coercion really, but it's a, it's a very like, psychologically manipulative one yeah it kind of reminds me of if you didn't want to put a mask that didn't work on your face in 2020 then you wanted to kill grandma right yeah exact same and they call you all kinds of names they say that if if you don't want to get the mask or take the shot that you're like a psychopath or something like that and um and it couldn't be further from the truth it's just it's just that you're thinking um critically about things yeah yeah it's just completely you know taking someone's values and turning them upside down and and using them to to bend them to your will and um you know it's a travesty really yeah never choose safety over freedom (laughs) right oh can i say one other absolutely go for it yeah May not be one other, but I, <laughs> I wanted to say this earlier. Um, maybe before we were recording, I mentioned John Kiriakou, the CIA. Uh, he became an operative counterterrorism guy before 9-11. And then after that, uh, during the Afghanistan campaign, he was in Pakistan in 2002. And one of the big things he was involved in was the capturing of Abu Zubaydah, who is believed to have been like a number three in Al-Qaeda. Turned out he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Also turned out there was two Abu Zubaydahs. And things got really confused. And the one that they got is still, uh, this is a whole different thing. You could go on, but I'm, I'm not going to. But he's still in Guantanamo Bay to this yeah. day despite not being who they thought he was. And he was tortured into making things up about right. Saddam and uh, bin Laden being in league with each other. Uh, aside from that, so this guy was involved in that operation. He wrapped up his tour in Afghanistan, gets back stateside. He gets a new job at the CIA. So we're talking August 2002. Just under a year after 9-11 and uh, a... Wait, 
talking March 2003. Yeah, I think it was August 2002. So he shows up at his new job and he's got to get read in on some super secret thing to go have a meeting with one of the bosses. And he's with his boss and they both have to get read in on this. I'm like, well, what's it about? Well, no one will tell us anything until we sign all the security stuff and they go through the whole thing. They're wondering what the heck it could be. And they also know that like, since the government overclassifies everything, that it might just be something trivial. But they get there and they're, the guy says, we're going into Iraq. And both these CIA guys who are like deeply immersed in all the intelligence operations stuff, who knew who the real bad guys were, they're like, what? <laughs> what do you mean we're going to Iraq? And like, it's been decided. Yeah. And it's happening. And here's like, get ready. This is what you need to do. The CIA is not taking the, the lead role this time. But they're like, well, what are, you, what are you talking about? Like, Congress hasn't declared war on Iraq. And uh, like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like, the White House has decided this is what's going to happen. And it doesn't matter if Congress declares war. And like, well, what about the UN? We're prepared to go it alone if the UN doesn't sign off on it. So, but, so the point being, these guys were just completely befuddled because they're like, well, what does Iraq have to do with anything? Yeah. And why are we going there no matter what? And what about Congress declaring war? What about the UN Security Council and starting a new foreign war of aggression? Like, and none of that mattered. And what they learned was all of the pressure for that or the loudest voices were coming from the vice president's office and the secretary of defense's office. So that was Dick Cheney. Yep. And Rumsfeld. And Rumsfeld. Okay. And so when I read that in the book and I listened to it again on my way here, just to refresh my memory was that these were, these weren't just regular people. They were immersed in intelligence. They'd been participating in the war on terror and they saw zero reason and were completely confused about Yeah. Like, so the CIA, at least not these guys, maybe someone at the CIA was saying it, but like no one was saying, hey, you know, we we ran through a list of all the different threats and we think Saddam Hussein's the one we got to go for next. Like, it wasn't that at all. Right, right. It was, there was other motives <laughs> yeah, by like, other factions who, yeah. And it just really struck me that the message was, this is happening. Right. And that brings up, I mean, remember the whole uh, freedom fries? Yeah. And pouring French wine down the drain because the stupid French oh, man. cowards. And the only thing, uh, what is it, uh, what was the joke? What does France and mustard have in common? Well, they're both yellow. <laughs> Whatever. But all that was is that the... French wouldn't sign off on the, at the UN Security Council. They wouldn't vote to authorize the war. So why does that matter? Well, because it was a new war of aggression. Well, why didn't we need that for Afghanistan? Well, because Afghanistan wasn't starting war of aggression. It was a retaliation. Right. So you didn't need it for that. 
but so that proves in and of itself that this was an unrelated thing. Yeah. That's why I had to go. And you could say, I mean, I'm not a UN fan by any means, but regardless, that was, that's how things work. And so, yeah. And there'd already been precedent for going into undeclared wars like Vietnam. I'm pretty sure we didn't declare. Right. I don't think there's been a declared war by Congress since world war two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the French were... These. They'll declare wars on things like abstract things like drugs or terrorism. Right. Which really just means we're going to war on people who are poor and can't defend themselves against us. Right, which is the other thing. So be really wary of whatever the government declares war on because yeah. they're going to get more of it. Yeah, it's a, it's a war for that thing, not against it. Yeah, <laughs> included. Um, so, yeah, it's been a war of terror, really, not yeah. a war, not a war against terror, and created way more than Ladenite, you know, crazy people than there ever were prior to that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the French were getting vilified because they didn't want to authorize a new war of aggression. And the other interesting thing that ties in this is what you should hit conservatives with, is that um, if you love the Constitution. Bush started to lose popularity in 2004 with Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, and it right. wiped things out, and then he was slow to respond. Now, I would say, why why would we wait around for what the federal government's going to do? Yeah. You know, but that's all a different thing. One of the reasons, though, that people were looking to the feds was the Louisiana National Guard wasn't there. And they weren't there because they were in Iraq. Yeah. 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 So this is, it's such a weird thing that you've got like, you've got our Coast Guard deployed to Somalia. You've got our New Jersey National Guard being deployed to Ukraine now. And this kind of thing has been going on for a long time. These people were supposed to be like actual defense of our borders are being sent off as offense to other people yeah. like in other places of the world. And that is, that does not leave us sitting in a good spot. Guard is in their name. Yeah. And the thing with the national guard being in Iraq in an undeclared war, which means an unauthorized war is that the constitution prohibits national guard forces, which are essentially meant to be state run militia forces. Yeah. For and purposes, they can only be deployed uh, deployed to a foreign war if it's, um, well, been properly declared. Yeah, and is um, I forget what the exact verbiage is, but it has to be in the interest of national defense because it's a defense. It's the most defense oriented. I think it has force. to be approved by the state or something like that as well. Which yeah. might not be hard to get done. Well, there's a whole thing about that now with the Defend the Guard movement. Uh, maybe that's what I'm thinking yeah. of. Yeah. So they're getting states to refuse to allow their National Guards to be deployed right. in unauthorized wars. And there's, of course, provisions for them that they can be. And, of course, when that happens, they're no longer under the government, the governor's control. Right. Yeah. They do fall under the federal forces. But even there's goofiness with that because there was some Supreme Court case 
that kind of makes this phony provision for the federal government to just sort of take over control of national guards mm. if they have the right justification for it but technically that shouldn't even be the case like the national guard belongs to that state yeah and their yeah. boss is the governor yeah but those little things are are actually really important so you know, if you're if you're a constitutionalist or you believe that the Constitution means something, you should have a real problem with that. Yeah. Because um, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. It's uh. No, it just feels like we're kind of being gutted from from the inside out and spread across the world and and without leaving a whole lot of vitality here at home. Yeah, it's not good. Um, this proxy war with Russia has uh, certainly been a disaster for our arsenal. I was seeing stories about, you know, guys, U.S. troops emptying our armories to send that gear, that ammunition and weapons to Ukraine. Yeah. That's a whole. It's that's another couple of podcasts. <laughs> well, yeah, it's um, it, it leaves us in a scary spot, and as we see the petrodollar being left behind as well, it's um, countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia are cooperating. Um, Brazil, China, like they're all they're all getting together with their own they're they're all starting to trade with the, with each other without using without going through us essentially which is like what the US res, or the world reserve currency being the US dollar kind of did for us it was that um that that petrodollar was um was the was the thing that everybody traded in and as they start to trade in other currencies um they don't they don't need us anymore <laughs> and a lot of that stuff's going to come home as far as it's uh yeah it's hard to know how it's going to actually go um but clearly countries are seeing a certain weakness and in America and and it's giving them the courage to kind of stand up for themselves and deal with who they want rather than with who they've been um, convinced to deal with up until now. Yeah, the the unipolar moment is over, as they say. Yeah. So, you know, loss of reserve status for the dollar would be a real problem. Yeah, and it, it seems to be pretty actively happening. Yeah, and, and I know the argument that the dollar, and it's true at some level, it's still the cleanest, dirty shirt. You know, everyone, <laughs> everyone's in a pretty bad situation with their currency. And, yeah, and, yeah. And that is true. Yeah. But we shouldn't, therefore, just assume that it couldn't happen, that reserve status shifts elsewhere. Uh, or things at least become even just a little bit more decentralized, right. we'd have a lot of problems. Yeah. So, 
Um, definitely not something to take lightly, even though I would like to remain optimistic that for all our sakes that the dollar maintains some level of status for a bit longer at least. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you've uh, checked out Tom Luongo at all, he's got the idea that um, the Federal Reserve is acting in their own interests, which means trying to perpetuate the dollar beyond those other currencies and not going along with the the globalist agenda of just collapsing our entire economy. Wouldn't it be great if the U.S., the Fed, everybody could just like really get their act together? And I know, <laughs> I know I'm being ridiculous. Here. But get defense handled, like pull out of all these globe-trotting entanglements, stop meddling in everything, stop inflating the heck out of the money supply, uh, get a much better economic policy domestically and become a strong, productive, um, non-debt financed place. And we could get back all of the things we'd like to have, like by just not doing stupid things anymore. Yeah. Oh yeah. So much of all, all the stuff we've done, all, all our foreign policy has been a huge squander of resources. It's been a wasting of our life force essentially. Cause our, our money is a representation of that. Our savings are a representation of that. And Inflation takes away from that. Taxation takes away from that. Like everything they do kind of like it's if they're not putting it toward something worthwhile, then it's a squandering of it. And even when they are, it's not done efficiently. So it's still squandering. <laughs> exactly. And that, I mean, it ties into this war stuff pretty heavily because this monetary policy has allowed them to pretend these wars are free. Right. And I think yep. that's the thing that a lot of people don't realize. So when you see all these boom busts, when you see your purchasing power just evaporating in front of your eyes and you're wondering, you know, how could this be? Oh, it's because of COVID policy. It's like, no, it's be it's a 22 year long global war on terrorism that's cost trillions and trillions of dollars and led to all this monetary inflation and and people don't always make that connection that without the federal reserve and without the central banking and government's control of the money supply they can't do this stuff well and really the war on terror was just um uh, a drastic acceleration of that, but we're in a 110-year-long um, war on our sovereignty as far as financial um, sovereignty goes. Um, there's... Yeah, it's it's been... Ever since the Federal Reserve was created, they've been uh, working steadily to kind of um, enslave us by by subtly seeping out our resources. Yes, yeah, so there's another anniversary for you, 1913. Yep. 
bad year. <laughs> the Fed and the income tax, I yeah. believe, were the same year. Sounds right. And it's it's just insane. Yeah. But at least I think it was Vietnam where they figured out that instead of remember the whole war bond thing and well we weren't alive but second world war we've all heard about the war bonds we heard about the private sector retooling to build ships yep. and airplanes um the uh the tax rates would go up so the cost of the war that effort and sometimes people even lament that. Like, remember good old World War II when the whole country was just on board? Right. And part of it was it had to be. Like, everyone felt that cost because they were financing it essentially the proper way, which is generating revenue without just printing dollars. Uh, it's not quite that simple, but ever since then, they're like, well, why put this big strain on the the population and and when we can just create the money yeah and no one will feel the effects of it for a couple more decades yeah but this global war on terror stuff if you got the invoice the american taxpayer got the invoice for the iraq war that would have been game over yeah very very quickly but instead, we had the 2008 and 9 financial crisis, which is not unrelated to their reckless spending and money printing. So you do get the invoice just in a roundabout way. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't come in all at once, even yeah. in that case. Um, it's still that's that's really just a slightly stronger trickle of of what's been building up over a long time crazy <laughs> yeah well the day is gonna come when truth is revealed and and things have to go back to some sort of um, some sort of sanity some sort of truth-based standard someday and maybe it just happens here and there not all at once everywhere yeah, but in the meantime, you better watch out for that ninja variant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or the swine flu. <laughs> That's funny. Not to drag this on, but when we were going to Iraq on the airplane, they like came around and took everyone's temperature because there was a big swine flu thing oh, yeah. at the time. And... That reminded me of SARS and what, 0203, where SARS was going to... Yeah. So then I, I started to think about, just in my living memory, is 9-11 and we're all going to get killed by terrorists. And then it was 03 or whatever. It's like, you know, now we're all going to get killed by Saddam. Okay, that's part of the first category. But then it was SARS. We're all going to die from SARS, which was breaking out in Japan or China or both. I don't remember. And then it was, uh, we're all going to get killed by the swine flu. <laughs> and then all those just sort of fizzled out. Nothing really came of it. And I forget what the other thing was. Uh, 
I think uh, Ebola. Yeah, yeah. Every once in a while, they roll that one out. Yeah. A coli in the lettuce or whatever. Well, yeah, there's which been some real. of those, which, yeah, that is real. Um, but it also I mean, seems like it's like real, it tends to, I don't know, I, I kind of take it as a don't eat organic lettuce thing. <laughs> <laughs> but the point being, like, there's just, there's always this next thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Terrified yeah. Of. Yeah, we've got to got to remain in that state of fear, that state of fight or flight, so we can't um, just um, just prosper and thrive and and appreciate everything we do have, and and to me, that's kind of the, the answer is to do that, like to kind of uh, it's good to be aware of all the evil things that are being done in the world, but. Um, it's also very important to not let fear run our lives and to just kind of live defiantly and, and do what's right and what we need to do to um, support ourselves and our communities and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I agree. Well said. Cool. Should we call it? Sure. All right. Thanks, Mark. Thank you.